This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, The Mystical Positivist. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week we feature a recording of a talk that Rob and I gave at Mini Rivers on Thursday, February 20th, along with some additional comments recorded in the studio after the talk. Entitled, Diffusing the Human Comfort-Seeking Missile, the pre-talk publicity describes it this way. What provides comfort to the afflicted? What provides comfort to those who are dissatisfied despite possession of material wealth, fame, or power? How does comfort differ from joy, equanimity, or happiness? These are some of the themes this talk will explore. Most 21st century Western cultural imperatives strongly reinforce natural inclinations to seek out comfort and avoid discomfort. The cultural imperative of our time, to seek out that which we hope will comfort us, manifests powerfully as a host of technologies intended to ease human life, technologies that simply did not exist throughout most of the human story. Labor-saving devices were just the start. Now we have algorithms to find experiences and even mates that will satisfy desires without challenging our foibles. Yet despite the undeniable benefits of some of these technologies, and despite generally longer lives and greater health, we see little evidence that human happiness has increased in recent generations. Genuine spiritual traditions offer methodologies and ideas designed to affect the inner life rather than outer circumstances. Such methodologies were the only game in town in past times when changing the material circumstances of life was impractical, if not unimaginable. In a time when skepticism towards religion and spiritual authorities seems not simply justified but even necessary, is there a path between cynicism and hope for something that will help us touch the higher dimensions of the inner life? Join us for considerations of such possibilities. After this talk, Rob and I will add some concluding observations from the studio, so please now enjoy Diffusing the Human Comfort-Seeking Missile with Rob Schmidt and myself, Stuart Knick. Welcome me and welcome Stuart. Uh, so Rob Schmidt, Stuart Goodnick, um, who knows how many talks we've done here at Many Rivers Books and Tea since we're two of the founders. but. Um, this talk was stimulated by a by a line in a book that I recently read, as often happens, actually, um, often that I am stimulated by something I read. And the um, the line is describing people as as uh, comfort-seeking missiles. Mm -hmm. So, um, diffusing the comfort-seeking missile obviously takes a different tack. Um, although not really from from the uh, book. The, the book is called Naked in the Zendo by a woman named Grace Shearson and she's describing um, her her life her life in general but her life in particular through the lens of her Zen practice. And 
So um, a lot of the book is a uh, recounting of the moments of discomfort that arise in her uh, spiritual practice. And because that resonates so strongly for myself um, with our uh, teacher's work, I thought, well, let's, let's have a talk about that because it's not, it's not your usual way of approaching life. If anything, here in the 21st century, we are inundated in um, comfort-seeking and um, trained to expect comfort-seeking and even encouraged to comfort-seek. So I want to start off by saying nothing wrong with that. Um, in and of itself, you know, I'm, it's not a uh, an either or. You know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that there is virtue in um, um, stripping mostly naked and, and living in the forest, and you know, uh, I don't know, eating grubs and. Um, um, Denying oneself the things that we usually think of, of com- think of when we re- when we um, refer to the word comfort, at least the things I think of. But what I was interested to discover when I looked up the word comfort in the dictionary is that it focuses the f- the major definitions focus on relief um, from affliction or distress or anxiety. So relief. And how does relief happen? That's one of the um, questions I want to uh, want us to consider tonight. So, um, you know, sometimes, famously in the Peanuts cartoon, um, the character Linus gets relief with his blankie, and um, and Lucy offers. The opposite of relief in her psychiatric. <laughs> um, office, as it were. But um, um, but people are looking for um, relief, and they use those tools. But the, I think the classic, maybe one of the classic ideas of relief is that um, of. And I see it not infrequently in the store. In fact, I even saw it today, when a, chi- a young child um, has some kind of um, discomfort, and a mother, uh, usually a mother, but often a father too, will uh, seek to relieve that discomfort. And how does that happen? It happens through contact. Yes. Uh, right. And so I'm. I'm. Uh, also thinking there of another book I'm reading for another show that we're going to be doing on our podcast uh, called The Bright Way where the author is making the assertion that um, that creativity and contact are linked that the way to achieve um, uh, greater levels of contact is through expression of creativity that's another book, another topic. I won't go go further than that, but um, but this 
sense of contact is important, and I want to contrast that with the ways that our contemporary society has developed to substitute something else for contact that we label comfort. So I'm sure you guys can all, without me even going any further, you could, in fact, why don't we, um, I invite you to, to, to um, come up with ways in which um, comfort is, is understood to be available through, not through human contact, but through other means. What, what do we have in our, in our culture today? Movie TVs. Movie TVs, those TV. were the first two. <laughs> those were the first two right there. Exactly. There's, there's uh, I mean, not so much for my, my generation, but video games. Goodness, for goodness sake. I'm noticing a lot of people are addicted to anger. Mm. And, huh? and uh, like, watch Fox News. They, they want to get you angry all the time, so you'll keep watching. Correct. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, I'm not sure that fits into the comfort. Maybe it does. Well, it's, it's it's comfort it's in like a certain I sense. Share your anger. Yes, yes. let's be angry together. Uh-huh. It reinforces someone's anger, someone's own anger. It reinforces. Yeah. Right, okay. but I'm not. St- I'm still not sure that it's the comfort. Okay. Um, doesn't achieve comfort. What's that? Doesn't achieve comfort. Doesn't achieve comfort. <laughs> but it, but it is a related phenomenon. I'm, 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 that's I'm a happy good to say that. Thank you. Yeah, you think you're going to get comfort that way, but yeah. well, we also <laughs> have we also have uh, other ways to do that. There are um, computer algorithms that are intended to allow one to find a mate mm-hmm. or date mm-hmm. or whatever in between. Um, Any distraction? Uh, well, I think that's the key word here mm-hmm. um, because it's um, perhaps, and this is a, an hypothesis for you to consider, perhaps these, these non-human substitutes, non-human contact substitutes for comfort are um, are actually mostly distractions, so we won't notice that the human contact that is the strongest um, source of um, of uh, comfort, in fact, is is almost in the. It's even in. I won't read uh, the definitions because I didn't write them all down. But there's a lot of um, definitions which explicitly. Acknowledge, acknowledge human um, relationship as a source of comfort. So, and human contact as a source of comfort. And yet, we have these other things. Yeah. Thank you, Robert. Well, I agree with Alan that that someone who is already upset and angry and an angry or aggravated person, they find comfort and reinforcement in others who share their opinion. So okay. they would love to listen to uh, Fox News if that, if those opinions are their own. But KSRO radio is not, it's a talk radio information. It's not a distraction. I listen to it for comfort seven days a week because it's what's going on in our local area. 
and it helps me be oriented and feel like I'm feel like I'm outside when I'm inside all the time. Okay. So it's not a distraction. It's, it's it makes me feel like I'm participating in more. Okay. I'm going to make a distinction between that though, that form of contact, which is entirely voice mediated, uh-huh. but um, the form of contact that I was referring to when I first when I talked about kids being um, needing comfort, and that is human physical contact. No babies. Babies, but not even babies. Only babies. You know, um, especially babies and and lesser as as they grow older. But that form of of contact, and it's the kind of contact that we expect between, say, spouses, or even just just dear friends, you know, when a a stressful circumstance or or an anxious moment, you know, you hold someone or you you hold their hand or or you take... You take some kind of step to um, reassure that there's another person present who is paying attention to what you're experiencing. Yeah, that's two way, whereas media is just one way. That's a good point about one direction. You're right, Alan. So I I want to make a distinction here in the, the difference between a desire and a need. Because that I think that that mm-hmm. helps clarifies some of the distinctions we're talking about. So we have needs that are organic needs or natural needs. A baby needing touch uh, is a, a real organic, you know, body need. That when that's not there, that that has developmental consequences. Yes. And then similarly for people, uh, you know, even in relationship, there are certain needs that we have in terms of being in contact as social creatures. Um, that when that need is fulfilled, there's certainly a kind of a relaxation, but um, it has a very different uh, energetic sense than a uh, desire. And desires are um, a category of as-if needs, but they tend to be more like a grasping out for something to fill an experience of emptiness within oneself. And so, you know, someone uh, sitting in the uh, uh, casino playing the slot machines is trying to uh, uh, exercise a desire because there's a sense, uh, an experience that they're in, you know, they're in reaction against and they're trying to satisfy that itch with something external to themselves. It so happens that um, there's a lot of things like gambling. Uh, I've, I've seen research on, on self-righteousness to get back to the anger question that operates similarly where when these these kinds of moments are triggered, our phone goes off, there's a release of dopamine or a release of endorphin of some sort in the brain. When you say our phone goes off, you mean uh, you, get a, you know that you're receiving a message from yeah, someone. Yeah, like an email. Yeah. Okay. That uh, there are these there are these events that we get kind of primed for, and they all have this uh, the similar valence of uh, uh, inviting us to fill an, an emptiness that we're feeling in a moment. We may not even be aware of the emptiness, but we have that emptiness, and we're gr- grasping for something to feel. And that to me very is that's what I c- tend to think of as a uh, desire. 
and uh, a need behaves very differently because when a need is filled, it, it's, it's like there's a completion. When a desire is filled, uh, uh, the emptiness returns. You dig the hole deeper. Yeah, yeah, and and the cycle just continues. You know that uh, there's a might might be a temporary cessation, uh, uh, but then the cycle uh, starts back over again. So when we talk about comfort, I think we have to be clear about what we mean in terms of uh, whether we're talking about uh, natural comfort, the comfort a baby feels in his mother's arms, versus uh, a kind of compulsive seeking for comfort. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and I, what's that? Pleasure, maybe. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, and pleasure is a mixed, you know, a mixed term. So I want to be um, careful with that because pleasure can be, you know. Pleasure can be a, uh, uh, there's a need for pleasure in a sense. There's a need for play, I believe, that's very real for us. And so I don't want to dismiss pleasure as automatically a uh, uh, always a representative of a compulsive, uh, addictive kind of behavior of trying to fill an emptiness within oneself. Uh, but there are certain kinds of experiences that uh, we go for that seem to be, you know, it's kind of like eating uh, popcorn. I, I remember uh, for myself um, the uh, very first time I smoked a cigarette. I was uh, uh, driving uh, to pick up a friend to drive out to college and I had this very, very strong body experience of, of that cigarette and it was just very intense and very pleasurable. But every other cigarette I smoked in my life after that, until I ultimately quit, was an attempt to regain that experience. You know, so it was like there was something missing that I was trying to uh, recapture. And I think a lot of um, uh, the grasping that we have for sensation, the grasping we have for uh, our idea of pleasure uh, or our idea of fulfillment, is often a an attempt to pull something into ourselves to feed this uh, uh, uncomfortable sense of uh, uh, emptiness that we're trying to avoid actually putting attention on. Well, that's interesting that you say that because um, I was just listening to, not recently, uh, an interview with Michael Pollan, the author Michael Pollan, whose latest book is about caffeine. Mm-hmm. His previous one was about um, entheogens, I guess. Um, but um, in this book about uh, caffeine, he describes the experience of quitting uh, caffeine. It's mostly coffee for him, but um, tea as well. And so we went to cold turkey for three months. And at the end of that period, after he'd, he'd done his research and he had, I guess, written his audio book. That's what it is. It's actually an audio book. Um, the world is changing around us as we sit here in a bookstore with all these physical books that we're looking at. But this audiobook about caffeine um, uh, apparently concludes, or I, I, since I haven't heard the, the actual book itself, but his story concludes with just the sort of experience that you just described. So his first cup of coffee after three months cold turkey off is like this... Um, he describes it as being not unlike what you just described your first cigarette was like. Hmm. And um, and then subsequently, not so much. Um, and so that's, um, 
um, I think a common thing that we find is that we find something that feels good and we and we want to um, uh, reproduce it but but I think you're suggesting in what you just said Stuart that in fact there's um, a a deeper more fundamental craving that's being um, exercised when we take the second and third and 500th cup of coffee yeah or or Again, it, it, it could it could be any any sort of compulsive behavior that we have that we're trying to right. re- replace something or return ourselves to something uh, that we construe either consciously or pre-consciously that we're missing, and that that's you know in a way you think about um, if you um, had a positive experience and you have associations with that experience as a, a thing to go towards and uh, you're not feeling that now then going after the thing that recreated that experience makes sense having a cup of coffee so I feel alert um, but a lot of that seems to me uh, to be more in the realm of uh, a story we tell ourselves as opposed to uh, something that's objectively true and just recently uh, I went through a period of a month where I stopped Having coffee or, or, or and stopped uh, drinking wine, uh, which was my habit uh, with meals, and um, d- did it for about a month. And interestingly, uh, th- uh, there was no need during that time. Um, uh, whereas prior to that, uh, there, there had a lot of relationships with uh, the idea of need coming up. That oh, I needed to have a coffee now, or I really wanted to have a glass of wine now. <coughs> And when I wasn't doing that, none of that was actually there. Uh, and so the, it makes me look at the the way in which my mind would, you know, create the idea of something that's going to make me feel better or something that's going to make me feel comfortable and uh, um, uh, create a desire around that so that I have a magnetic pull towards uh, whether it's that cup of coffee or that glass of wine. And with that magnetic pull, I start to arrange factors in my life so that I can fulfill such things uh, more easily. Maybe I order coffee. Uh, uh, you Speaking know. of which, do you want some more tea? Yeah, I'd love some more tea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I order you know, coffee so I can have a, 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 a blast myself with a cup of coffee first thing in the morning. And yeah, when I wasn't doing that, uh, it was possible for that stuff to be completely gone. Which then you know, raises the question, well, what, what, is, what are these... Uh, uh, things in our lives that are so attractive that we feel that we're more complete with them uh, and do they actually provide the kind of completeness that we uh, tend to assume they do where do you draw the line between what I might call without thinking about it too much a psychological addiction and a physical addiction um I don't know that I have a clear line because um, um, I, I don't even know that. I, th- I think there may be cases where uh, certainly there's a, a physical addiction where the body is much more, uh, you know, has a much more deeply inscribed uh, association uh, such that um, 
there's a stronger uh, pattern of force uh, associated with the fulfillment of the uh, the desire. Yeah. I still tend to think, even even in the case of uh, 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 someone on like a, an addicted to an opioid, uh, you know, that begins with habits. Those habits uh, first are inscribed emotionally, but then they get inscribed uh, physically, uh, and they're habits that can be changed by uh, an action of uh, intention or an action of will, or a repeated action of will. So, so there it might be different in degree, but not necessarily different in kind to what we're talking about. It doesn't sound like you encountered the challenges in your month away from your usual comfort uh, foods or drinks that somebody who was really physically craving something rather than psychologically craving it. I mean, it, it sounded the way you described it that it was relatively easy for you to quit. Yeah, but I, and, and I, did, <coughs> I didn't want to emphasize, my point of bringing that up wasn't so much that uh, uh, it was a, you know, that I had some sort of special powers uh, in, in that particular case. I was doing it because I had a, I had a different purpose. I was actually engaged in a series of daily meditation practices for which part of the context was not to, you know, it was to really try to let go of all the things we fill ourselves with to attain to a different level of sensitivity. So I had a purpose, mm -hmm. and that purpose was strong enough to um, uh, override what might otherwise have been a psychological need uh, so, asserting so, itself. So yeah, so I'll, I'll just jump in here to, to point out that what Stuart's describing is um, is not a force pushing against the habit. So other people might be told by their doctor you should give up coffee, right? And so there are these two forces or inclinations. Mm -hmm. I want to be healthy and I want to live longer and I really want that cup of coffee mm -hmm. um, that are um, opposing each other. Mm -hmm. But in Stuart's case, that's not what, that's not what was happening. And I think that makes a difference because, um, in other words, Stuart, orthogonal to those two um, inclinations, um, is that it was this other one, this commitment he made to be able to do this particular set of um, uh, meditative exercises mm -hmm. to achieve whatever he, you know, had the goal of achieving. And that, I think that that changes the the dynamic from what. It's often uh, understood. So, was there in that experiment an awareness of the existence of maybe the word craving is too strong? Yeah. So, yes, there there was in the particularly if I was tired at the end of a long day, um, uh, sometimes it would arise. This it would be nice to have a glass of wine. And uh, relax, and so that 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 came up that would come <laughs> up, but it never came up with the uh, uh, motive force to uh, derail the intention I, I was uh, operating under. Uh, what was surprising to me actually was uh, I was actually quite surprised about the uh, caffeine. Uh, I expected I actually expected to be more 
uh, impacted by the uh, caffeine because uh, I had a long-standing narrative that uh, you know. Uh, Without uh, that cup of morning Joe? Yeah, well, pr particularly if, uh, particularly if I don't get you know eight hours of sleep, but get six hours of sleep, okay. and and uh, I need that coffee in the morning. Yeah. So so there's some themes in here though I think that are worth uh, uh, looking at because uh, what I'm describing suggests something that I've certainly experienced in other contexts that when the these desires are playing out for ourselves if we feel a kind of a um, uh, an emptiness within ourselves or an uncomfortable emptiness that we really want to distract ourselves from and and by distracting ourselves it can be any number of different kinds of activities that we might use to fill that void uh, uh, it could be self-righteousness from uh, you know listening to uh, talk radio it could be uh, gambling it could be uh, 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 caffeine tea coffee uh, uh, alcohol or other drugs there's there's lots of different ways some people use sex for this purpose and uh, there's a difference in the way that plays out when there is no intention at work and so there's something about this idea of having an aim or a purpose uh, that changes our relationship to this cycle of trying to feed this uh, un unfeedable uh, emptiness. Or the um, reciprocal cycle of trying to stop feeding just for its own sake. Yeah. This, um, that, and that's kind of the point I made a, a moment ago. And, and they're related as any uh, opposing... Well, yeah, and that, there and, do. And that, yeah, and, and I think the issue, or the reason why they're related, is that uh, the the challenge uh, is that if you stay at the symptom level, like gee, drinking coffee is uh, not good for me, or that's a bad habit, but you're not really uh, addressing the uh, source of the craving, the deeper source of the craving, then changing the symptoms is not going to uh, be a very effective strategy uh, because the craving is not going to go away so there may be a battle of wills where you have to just sort of uh, be uncomfortable or you find a different craving you find a substitute but the dynamic is still very much the same that we are, we are uh, not really looking at the condition of our uh, selves, our, our sense of ourselves, our relationship to our lives and our relationship uh, uh, to our interior experience uh, w with full attention. We are off in the symptom land. Yeah. So if I understand you right, you're saying that the source of the craving could be simply that I want a distraction. <laughs> I, I, I want to deny this other thing that's going on. So I, I'm Instead, I want this. Yeah, there, there. Uh, Although it might, it might not manifest as, as, a voice in your head saying, "I want a distraction," no, no, or something like that. But not but that clearly, just unconsciously. Right. 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 I, there, there, it, it's a, what what sort of a manifests. Uh, there's a word I, I I've seen used in uh, some uh, Sufi treatments of this kind of uh, question, and that's uh, avoidance. So we're trying to avoid looking at something within ourselves, right. and uh, that avoidance will 
play out by you know anything but looking there. Yeah, because it, it makes perfect evolutionary sense that you know if you know a thousand generations ago I'm a monkey or whatever, I eat a delicious healthy fruit. Oh, I like that. I want to do that again. That that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Question. I just wanted to get back to the concept of the void or emptiness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. So like what we're talking about is all these things that we're doing because of this void or this emptiness. And we started off with comfort and the story, you know, about, you know, like a mother, you know, taking care of a child or the relationships between spouses or friends or whatever. So it seems like it's easier to get rid of those distractions if instead of focusing on trying to stop the distraction, Maybe by focusing on trying to encourage the more positive thing, which would be the friendships or the spousal relationship, or for that matter, you know, a sense of uh, spirituality would be a relationship to God. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that fill the void. So, in other words, a person has this void and they're filling it with all this other stuff, where the real thing that really truly fills the void the emptiness is the friendships and the relationships and the relationship the vertical relationship with God and I think you're absolutely right and yet um, um, what is what's a lot more commonly broadcast in in our culture it's the it's the um, uh, the movies the TV the video games the, the the distractions in that way well I think one of the reasons and I um, there's one other dimension in this mm -hmm. that um, I think one of the reasons that um, people um, maybe do those things is because um, the relationships to video games and TVs or movies or whatever thing there's there's no real relationship there. Mm -hmm. So when you have relationships with people, then of course it's not always positive. The mother. The mother <laughs> comforts the son, but maybe the next day she's screaming at him. Mm -hmm. So relationships between people is not always that easy. So sometimes people, rather than develop these positive relationships with other people and closeness, there are things that really, truly, if it was a good positive relationship, would genuinely help. People maybe have a history of seeing oh, well, you know, that person's really a jerk. <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, or not very kind, or... I mean, how many times have I walked down the street, for example, and smiled and said hi to somebody, and somebody went... Uh, countless here in Sebastopol. Countless. Yeah. So, you know... Sebastopol, that, the that friendly city? You, <laughs> that, that makes you kind of think, well... Do I now? What do I do? Do I want to be a jerk and and do the same thing? Because of course I think that's terrible to to be that way. And yet, if I put myself out, there's a, there's a high probability that people are just going to. And yet, there are a lot of genuinely nice people. There's a lot of people I say hi to, and they just smile at me, and they. Yeah. yeah. So, but it's a risk. Yeah. That's it. That's what. That's <laughs> where I'm trying to get to. Well, uh, and that's a that's that's in itself. Uh, uh, opening a door of uh, an interesting line of discussion, but I want to just emphasize what you're describing about contact. 
that you know this this idea of contact this idea of like it begins as as uh, babies in our mother's arms uh, it begins by having contact from parents uh, with uh, family uh, social contact all of these things are ways in which we you know can build uh, a healthy balanced sort of sense of self that doesn't have the uh, um, nagging emptiness but when that but no developmental process is perfect in our lives and so we all have these uh, uh, strengths and weaknesses and uh, uh, stabilities and instabilities and those when those things play out unconsciously there's a tendency to you know then suddenly try to fill the holes with something outside of ourselves just like Rob was saying, you know, we're conditioned by the way our social reality is created to think that the answer lays out, lies outside. And ultimately, what you described is an interesting question, which is, you know, it may be possible then to have a relationship or a connection with something within ourselves that is more foundational, you know, you use the term connected with God, whatever language he wants to use about that, but something that's uh, a deeper connection with the nature of our being that may have uh, may ultimately mean that the uh, manifestation of that sense of emptiness shifts and, our, and uh, that we don't experience that in the same way. So so the way I, 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 I'll frame what you guys have just been discussing is that in terms of the discussion we've already gone through here um, you know we start off seeking comfort through the natural mammalian relationships that, um, um, we, we absolutely physiologically and psychologically need um, in our culture we've created ways to simulate that through distractions, to use the word and um, uh, put forward. Um, and you can, even though I, I'm making a distinction between them, in a sense, as you guys are now saying, those are outer dimensions. They're, um, they're looking for external circumstances, or they're dependent upon external circumstances. Oh, the power went out, and I can't watch my TV show, or my, or my, you know, uh, DVD, whatever it is, you know, um, my computer's dead, the battery's dead. Oh dear. Comcast is down. Comcast is down. Exactly. I can't stream. So, um, so there's these external or outer circumstances, and what spiritual practice is about, it seems to me, is about pointing to the inner life to the inner circumstances and that's that's what you guys have been dancing or dancing mm -hmm. around in this in this discussion it seems to me and um, you know um, there are so many um, dimensions to this but one of the ones that that strikes me because it relies upon that the phrase the title that I that I chose for the talk human comfort seeking missile um, a lot of the things that are common about spiritual practices are that they ask us to defer comfort in service of something else. Not unlike what Stuart described his experience was, 
when he decided to engage in a set of exercises that would take 28 days and would um, not be worth doing unless he didn't have the caffeine and, and the alcohol consumption. So, um, and, you know, the book from which I took the title, Naked in the Zendo, is about, you know, Rinzai uh, Zen practice, and that's understood to be one of the decidedly, um, what would the word be, yang spiritual practices around. It's tough. I was just talking with with my friend Ginny um, this afternoon, and she was describing uh, she just got back from a from a Sashin retreat in Mount Baldy um, with the uh, practice group that she's worked with for forty plus years, and she's seventy now, and and she was saying this is one of the hardest ones she's ever had to do. She had extra duties to do. It wasn't just sitting. She was actually taking care of all these other 70-year-olds who are having all these physical problems that they pretend don't exist, and then they, their bodies fail them, and then they have to be have their food brought to them and stuff like that. <laughs> and you know, through the howling wind at 6,700 feet, um, and and so forth and so on. But but the point, the general point, is that she's deferring comfort. It's not a comfortable place to be on top of Mount Baldy where you have to go a quarter mile back and forth from the Darshan Hall, uh, excuse me, it wouldn't be Darshan Hall, the Zen Meditation Hall and uh, the living quarters and all, and all that stuff. And when she, it had just snowed the day before she got there. So it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, they don't have heat. In the way that uh, a lot of places do, it's it's not a uh, it's not a comfortable place, and in some ways that's a more extreme example. As I say, it's one of the more young contexts of practice, um, and is understood to be that. And yet, she's been doing it for 40 years, and she's doing it for 40 years for a reason, not because she's uh, trying to look good. Which is actually one of the one of the distractions that we sometimes that people um, often, without realizing that they're doing it, um, choose, um, or or the reasons uh, that, that 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 people sort of fool themselves about. That's why they may be doing some kind of uncomfortable practice. But the point is that we need to to get ourselves out, or it's useful to get ourselves out of our usual comfort-seeking habits to do something different than we're usually inclined to do. So, um, and it could be a, a relatively mild thing, like like what Stuart was describing, or it could be living on Mount Baldy, and um, and. Different, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> yeah, but the, I mean, so what you're offering for consideration is the possibility or the idea that there is something that we can gain if we make an effort uh, that may not be comfortable. 
Mm-hmm. Um, or, def- I, or defer comfort. And, and we, we have these intuitions, I mean, uh, uh, on all sorts of things. If you want to learn a musical instrument, you have to make certain kinds of efforts that are not the fun of playing a musical instrument. It's just, it's uh, uh, some of it can be very boring. If you, you know, want to earn a living, there's various forms of work that are available that may not be fun to do, uh, that, uh, uh, or any given job that someone has will have fun aspects and not fun aspects. And so we have a sense of that there's effort that can be made and that if we defer the gratification of comfort in making an effort that we can attain to something larger than the immediate sphere of the comfort that's uh, uh, being, you know, challenged. And so that in ordinary life we have those intuitions uh, and there's lots of examples of that. So then the question uh, that's interesting to me in spiritual practice is what are the efforts in spiritual practice that are um, similar invitations to defer gratification <coughs> in order to attain something that may be a possibility offered by the um, uh, practice itself that may open up a, a larger uh, realm of experience. So the word that keeps coming to my mind with what you were just both of you were talking about is asceticism. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, so I mean that's I mean that's def- definitely related to everything that you were. Yeah, sure, and, that, and I think asceticism is is an attitude that a lot of people, in sort of, to my way of uh, looking at it, maybe not necessarily always effectively, um, counterposing to the this obvious tendency to seek comfort that we've been that we've been talking about yeah. and that's why I started off by the way um, <coughs> because I don't um, hold the view of asceticism as a virtue in itself but that's why I started off by saying um, that comfort is neither good nor bad and in its in and of itself as with so many other things but it's um, what we want to achieve where we want to go or don't want to go, that um, helps us helps us be drawn to certain certain ways of manifesting. But go ahead and, and say more about asceticism. Well, and asceticism is is definitely um, concerned with the denial of appetites. So when you're talking about mm-hmm. appetites, you're talking about the whole range of appetites. That mm-hmm. could be Drugs, an appetite for drugs, for sex, it could be an appetite for food, gluttony, mm-hmm. the appetite for anything, or anything that you're controlled by. So that's the whole point of asceticism, is to purify oneself, so that to keep one, to deny those appetites. Yes. Because the appetites are associated with the passions. That's so the when the passions start getting risen. So that's why people do the ascetic lifestyle to reduce the level of those passions down. Because if they start using a lot of spicy food and start eating a lot of really good food, then they're starting to think about, you know, drinking a lot of really good wine, and then they're drinking whiskey, and then they're going down to the bar, and then 
then they're going uh, to wherever. But, well, that's the story. That's the ascetic that's, that's story. Or whatever they're doing. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, <laughs> I'm just going to jump in here really quickly, then, and, and then Stuart can respond to it. But Gurdjieff, um, the founder of the Fourth Way, had a, had a very interesting suggestion about this sort of thing, and that is he would have, just as an example, not the only example, but he would have people who are addicted to cigarettes stop si stop smoking and then he'd have them start smoking again precisely in order to um, demonstrate to oneself that it's not about purification it's about the relationship to our habit tendencies but Stuart what, go did, he, what, did, what did they gain by Having them start smoking. Mm -hmm. again. To, to good question. Uh, well, the, the, the gain uh, you gain by the the point of the exercise is not to stop smoking. The uh, as a permanent power. thing, the point of the exercise is to see what is what arises when you uh, stop the habit, mm -hmm. and to see all the ways in which you are trying to strategize. You know how you're going to have that uh, cigarette after all. And to uh, get a good look at that, get a good look at the automatic factors uh, associated with the habit. But the point is not to stop the habit. So typically, the you know the oh. instruction was to you know start you start smoking again and you get back up to the level that you had. Now later on, you may decide in, in completely independent of the exercise, I'm not going to smoke, and you may do that for health reasons, and that's fine. It's not like you have to smoke, but it's but for purpose of the of the exercise, you you defeat its purpose if all it's about is you uh, 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 you know cutting Pur off pur habit. purifying yourself or not yeah, purifying yourself or getting healthy or not getting healthy. Yeah, and so and so this this question of uh, asceticism is an interesting one because uh, uh, we live in a world with lots of. Uh, Invitations for all sorts of kinds of distractions, uh, whether it's your smartphone, whether it's uh, I'd say we live in the anti-ascetic world. <laughs> yeah, uh, we have we live in a world of abundance, and uh, you can have anything that you uh, uh, within reason you can have just about any uh, desire at a uh, uh, that you want you can fulfill it uh, for sensation. So asceticism is an interesting experiment in in the way that we're describing because in order to truly see the relationship that you have with the factors of as you put it the passions or the desire factors that uh, are trying to uh, fill something uh, because there's there's some need to be filled and there's some sense that you can fill that need by getting something outside of yourself to really study that and to be present to that is uh, a useful practice, and it's a useful practice to do for periods of time. Like I described the 28-day cycle I was on, well, it was very useful. It was, that was a renunciation of 28 days. Uh, you know, I'm not in the, I don't practice in the Christian tradition, but you know, there was Lent was uh, an, was uh, had a similar sense of. Uh, a period of time where you could create this space just so you could see um, you know should you have the attention to be present to that to see how you're 
uh, unconscious mind is uh, is operating in a way to uh, keep you firmly latched in the matrix of fulfilling desires on an ongoing basis. So I think as a practice it can be useful. Where it becomes a problem is if you get identified with purity and you have the idea that, uh, oh, I, uh, you know, eating uh, meat is uh, bad or eating uh, 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 or drinking is bad, uh, you know, in and of itself, and you become identified with that, then it's kind of like defeats the purpose of the exercises I've described it. It's kind of, it would be sort of like, you know, in the, in the Gurdjieff work, uh, saying, I'm quitting smoking because smoking's bad. But, we, well, but you're, that's not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is to renounce and then see, see how renuncia- uh, renunciation lands with the uh, total factors in oneself. And by seeing that and being present to that, there's something that we become more aware of. And we see not only the true condition of our ordinary living, but we also see uh, ultimately the possibility of changing our relationship to these uh, factors in ourselves that keep keep us always reaching out for something to fill a void. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. In other words, it's the, you know getting back to the model I just laid out. It's the inner, you're exploring your inner life in a systematic way. So doing doing this off again, on again, off again, or, you know, whatever sequence you, you choose to do, um, with habits. Um, because uh, Gurdjieff wouldn't just have people stop smoking, he'd have people start smoking who weren't smokers, you know, uh, and, then, and then stop again. So, um, <laughs> to see what that's, what, what that's like. Yeah, and I, I know, and I, I, I'll point out that when Gurdjieff did that, I mean, that was at a, a time when lots of people smoked and there wasn't, you know, there was probably some notion of its health uh, effects, but not quite the... Yeah. You can do the same thing today with plenty of habits that are uh, 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 not quite so immediately uh, toxic. And um, exactly. so it's not, it, the point isn't smoking. The point is that the point is that the point isn't stopping the habit. The point is renouncing the habit for a period of time and then bringing it back so that you get the full picture, the full spectrum of the function of the habit within one's uh, uh, psychic life. So now we're all renouncing our smartphones. Oh, Oh, are we? (laughs) Well, uh, but that in itself is a useful experiment because uh, uh, there's a... Smartphones are like the new cigarettes in the sense that they... uh, There's this... It's pervasive. It's it's totally pervasive. As Stuart pointed out earlier, you get a little ding on your phone, and your inclination is to pick the darn thing up and and take a look at it. Yeah. And and as as Stuart said, that there's there's research that suggests there's you know you get a message and you look at the message. There's a little um, chemical thing that happens in your brain that stimulates you to want to do the same thing again and again and again yeah. because. It's like the, um, it's a substitute for the uh, touch, for the uh, contact. Oh, okay. yeah. It's a form of contact. I mean, you know, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to uh, overemphasize only physical contact. It's like some of the most profound forms of contact I've had have been deep, profound conversations with people you know, with friends and, and or colleagues or whatever. Or reading. 
um, reading can can be um, uh, profound as well. I love um, reading. Love yeah. it. And, and Alan, so that was a perfect demonstration, perfect example. Smartphones. Okay. Uh, an another good example is uh, uh, reading while eating. Mm -hmm. So um, there, there's one that, uh, uh, and I, I'm, I'm pulling, you know, habits from my life <laughs> that I know. I mean, yeah, because uh, our teacher, our teacher was was very clear about uh, suggesting letting go of the habit of uh, right. uh, reading but while eating. But, but that's an interesting one to, you know, to experience because uh, what, do, what does the reading while eating actually accomplish? What, what, what are you feeding there, as it were? Uh, and what does, uh, what's different about putting full attention on the food that you're eating? Now these are, the, and again, the, you know, this is not, these are small things, but if one has a habit of like, uh, reading uh, a magazine or uh, reading one's smartphone while one's eating, then uh, uh, putting that aside and just focusing on the food is interesting because um, you'll get a, a taste, again using a uh, eating metaphor, you'll get a taste of a difference. Something is missing, but something's there that uh, was missing when you were reading. And so it's a, again, this is an experiment that one can do to, um, you know, in the pursuit of uh, uh, diffusing the relentless uh, seeking of a certain kind of comfort or a, a certain kind of uh, satisfaction. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we feature a recording of a talk that Rob and I gave at Mini Rivers Books and Tea on Thursday, February 20th, entitled, Diffusing the Human Comfort-Seeking Missile. We will conclude with some additional remarks recorded in the studio after the talk. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined in the following by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. We now continue with a recording of a talk that Rob and I gave at Mini Rivers on Thursday, February 20th, entitled, Diffusing the Human Comfort-Seeking Missile. We will conclude with some additional remarks recorded in the studio after the talk. Well, there's a certain, there's also a way in which I think in in our media-related social environments, um, I think people, you know, the word risk came up earlier. There's a risk mm -hmm. um, in. Um, being with another person, they might say something about me I don't want to hear, or they they might uh, disapprove, express disapproval of what I'm doing, or or whatever. And so, from what I read, a lot of younger people nowadays um, mediate their relationships through their through their phones or other or other devices because it's safer. 
yeah, it's safer to do that. Even if they're literally sit, even if they're literally sitting next to each other, mm -hmm. one 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 on a couch, mm -hmm. um, they'll be texting each other mm -hmm. um, that way, and 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 so once again we're back to this invitation that spiritual practice offers to do a kind of exploration of inner life that allows us to see what's actually uh, shaping our our impulses to um, relate in these ways to touch our lives in these ways and um, and that's why comfort can be that's why the phrase comfort seeking missile struck me just struck me when I read it because um, there is a kind of boom that um, when, a, when an impulse when, a, when an impulse to seek comfort arises it can be as inevitable as a missile that's already been launched you didn't even notice that you pushed the red button somewhere along the way and that's um, that's we want to be able to see where the button is we want to be able to see the metaphorical finger that pushes the button within ourselves well, in our lives the missile, sorry the, the whole concept of the missile at the end of the day is destruction so mm -hmm. it, it infers that it's a destructive process well, I, I and I think that's what that's what the you know um, the author of Naked in the Zendo was suggesting um, from her Rinzai Zen uh, viewpoint, and that's as I said that's why uh, I'll repeat it again. I don't I, I'm not condemning comfort um, and the seeking of comfort. In fact, in terms of the distinction that Stuart was making earlier. There are um, needs for comfort. Um, when you know a friend, uh, um, the husband of a friend of ours uh, died, um, you know, a few months ago, and um, and I was hearing from my friend today about how she's doing, and and she's doing she's doing well, but um, there was a person in her environment. Who was creating a lot of stress for her, and and my friend was saying to her, you know, it's not productive for you to be um, subject to this this particular stress at this time, because the her, you know our our mutual friend was uh, was sort of saying, oh, I don't have enough compassion to you know. To see what she, you know, what she's going through and all this stuff, and and um, you know, when someone's dealing with grief, they're dealing with grief, and they get to have space to deal with grief, and they don't have to um, tell themselves that comfort seeking emotional comfort is wrong at such a time. We all have our uh, our our times and phases in our lives. But, but that that's your you're crossing the uh, the boundary between uh, desire and need because well, yes. there is there is a need and right. and distinguishing Well she was making she was making her need wrong. Yeah. And 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 confusing it with a desire. Yeah. 
and that's and that's the uh, but it's but that that's important because I mean self care in a, in a in a real sense is about understanding your needs and being true to the needs that you have uh, and it's a it's it's it can be hard to distinguish I mean because yeah, this is because absolutely. I, 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 one of the things that's coming up for me as we talk about this is um, the relationship to our feelings and our uh, our feeling selves and our the way we operate and function in our lives and what I mean by that is uh, most people tend to be identified with their feeling state uh, such that there's uh, really no separation between how they are how they're being and how they feel and what I mean by that and a good example is that because we see this all the time in the context of spiritual practice where uh, you know people may uh, uh, come to a meditation session or not, depending on how they feel that evening. And that relationship is, you know, it's, it's like uh, there are. If I feel like doing it, I'll I'll um, uh, do it. If I don't feel like doing it, I won't. I'll, I'll stay home or rest or something like that. And or watch TV or watch TV <laughs> or, so, or something like that. And we and we see that we we often see that with uh, you know. Well, people who say, "Hey, I'm going to come to your talk tonight," and they don't show up, or "I'm going to come to your group," and they don't show up, because in the moment that they're saying that, there's a feeling, and then later on, some other factor causes a feeling, and and so people are just kind of riding on feelings, and the only things that control those feelings are external factors, like you know, with a job, you know, you know, you know, it's kind of coercive. You if you don't feel like going in and you don't go in, eventually you'll get fired. But and so so you 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 kind of uh, respond to that external force. But for a lot of things that are in the realm of option, our feelings are governing what we do. And the reason that this is interesting here is that when we're talking about renunciation as an experiment, uh, changing a habit, what we're really trying to do is to start to put some space between. Uh, us as a being and the feeling that's arising at this moment and when we have space between us and the feeling uh, it may be a little space and we begin to see the process uh, but with practice there can be more space such that one has the possibility of choice such that you know when Rob is describing his uh, friend uh, Jenny the 40 year practitioner of uh, Renzai Zen uh, it wasn't Comfort wasn't a factor in what she was doing in the uh, uh, at the zendo on, on a retreat. You know, she had duties where she had to take food to people who needed food in, in uh, very uncomfortable conditions, and so, so she did it. And she did it as a choice because she was responding to something that was outside of the realm of the flux of feelings. But like I said, in ordinary, in our ordinary day-to-day, you know, unexamined modes of existence, you know, our sort of uh, walking sleep modes of existence, feelings tend to be what's governing what's going on, and a lot of times uh, the the function of the mind is to rationalize the feelings after the fact. That, that's kind of what I wanted to say was well, two things I wanted to say. So feelings may govern what we do, but our thoughts govern our feelings. Well, sometimes, yeah. but 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 also but also uh, 
Believe me, I'm there, I, there's nothing I believe more than that. I've yeah. taken myself from being extremely depressed to absolutely blitzed out in like an hour and a half, just yeah. like completely changing my thought process. In fact, one day I was so astonished it blew my mind. Good. I was really depressed and I was actually in ecstasy an hour later just by changing the way I thought. Yeah. But so, but that's one thing. And then the only other thing that I wanted to say was since this is all about comfort, I just wanted to bring out that at least in the in the Bible in the New Testament, the Comforter is the Holy Spirit. Which <laughs> we talk about comfort. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> How about the loaves and the fishes? Come on, that's comfort too. <laughs> but I mean, that comfort is, food. That is the of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament of the Bible. Right. The Comforter, but, but or the Counselor, but it also. <laughs> Some translations mm -hmm. use the word comforter. But that, that, that's an interesting uh, uh, expression because it, su it suggests that there is something transcendent of our phenomenal sensory realm that uh, can function as a source of comfort. Counselor or comforter, exactly. Uh, right, and and that connecting with well, that. Well, in the, in the Sufi tradition, though, it's lover and beloved. Yeah, even yeah. more intimate than that. But but as you but and you were describing that earlier that uh, that if there is a if there's contact with that then the emptiness that we were talking about earlier that drives some of the frenzy of uh, desire fulfillment doesn't function in that way. If the guy coming down Main Street this way, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? Oh, a car. car, 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 car. <laughs> it happens. It happens from time to time. Sitting at this, uh, sitting in this store, I can tell you that's not the first time I've seen people do I think that. You came out of the parking lot across the yeah. corner there. Yeah, yeah. You know, someone doesn't know uh, the area. Often, often, the, you know, from Burnett over there, they'll turn right. Yeah. If they don't know the area, then that, that could happen. Anyway. Uh, so yeah, so this this notion of the feeling and uh, being governed by riding on a wave of feeling and uh, the, the the point that you were making uh, is a little different than the point I was making because I was talking about a uh, a functioning without uh, the presence of intention. So you were describing that if you bring a tent intention. To this process of the mind and the uh, uh, feeling uh, brains interacting, then you can do interesting experiments by by changing uh, what you're thinking and notice that the feelings start to follow that. Absolutely. However, uh, as I said, w without that presence or without that intention, the ordinary kind of unconscious flow is for the feeling to play out and then the mind to, uh, after the fact, uh, uh, justify the feeling. And we can see that in ourselves because you know we we do something and then and then there's a story about why that was the right thing to do at that time. Well, I, I just want to add here that uh, the word you're using, feeling, is actually a little uh, slightly misleading. What it is is a reactivity. It's a reaction to usually external circumstances. Sometimes it's internal. It's a reaction to a reaction internally. But if you use the word feeling, um, then that um, that's that's a confusing word. To yeah, use. I mean, it's it's more. I mean, it's more complicated because, or it can be resolved more clearly in the sense that if you look at the feeling, if you're able to look at the feeling and have any sort of space, 
you can also see that the feeling is uh, uh, aligned with the sensation in the body, and different feelings may Emotions have. Is what you're talking yeah. About. yeah, yeah. So, so you can see, and so there's a relationship between the sensations in the body, the feeling, and the thought, and that gives rise to this uh, emotional flow. And when there's no space between that, uh, or there's very little space, then we're carried by that flow. And as I said, the if we think about it after the fact, um, very often we'll tell stories about why why what we did was the right thing to do, even if we have no idea why it happened. But the one, I think one of the most interesting questions is sometimes we are suckers for punishment. Sometimes we just allow ourselves to go into this place where we are punishing ourselves mm -hmm. and we bring ourselves down emotionally and yet you could make the person could make a choice not to, but like I said, that's why I use the, the well, term well, sucker for punishment. Well, but why do people do that? Yeah, but but choices choices uh, 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 an important word here because choice choice is a, a, a uh, doesn't necessarily come easily, uh, particularly if there's uh, complete identification with the uh, uh, feeling that's arising. So with self-criticism. There's a feeling that's arising, and there's an action. There's a you know self-criticism, but there's no space between us and the. It's only when you have that space, and you can actually see the sort of the mechanical functioning of the feeling and the thought and the sensation that you, the question of choice begins to come in. But for choice to come in, there has to be some level of intention, uh, or some level of we can use the word aim, or some level of positioning of our being at a different level in relationship to the phenomenology of the you know conscious interior conscious experiences that are produced by this organism which are thoughts feelings and sensations and so choice you know I don't I so although at one level you can say well we have the choice why do we keep you know beating our heads against the wall when we have the choice not to do that that's what I was trying right. to say. Right. But yeah, I know what you're saying and, 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 and but but until someone because 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 internally there's no there's no recognition of that you have the choice. Yeah. That that it yeah. that it is actually a choice. You can it's in words you can tell yourself a story and we do tell ourselves stories till we're blue in the face. That's that's <coughs> what I was just going to say was just, it's the internal dialogue. Right. And but that's so it's, the turn, it's the it's the little dialogue that you let yourself go on with. You know, it's interesting in the Desert Fathers, they didn't believe they had a, a viewpoint of those thoughts, that those thoughts weren't their own. Mm -hmm. Right. In other words, the, the way you look at it is like your mind is there and it's this, this place that this world of thoughts can pass through and they really only become yours when you accept them, when you grab and, and attach onto them. Right. And if they pass through your mind and you don't latch onto them, they just pa pass through your mind. Yeah. They really are not yours at but all. Yeah. And so, I, what I'm, so that to finish it, what I'm suggesting is those things that bring us down, that it's just the same old thing. They're just passing through your mind mm -hmm. and you latch onto it instead of let it ride. And just flow through. You latch on to it, and then it d does its destructive force until you decide to get out of it or change your thinking. <laughs> well, it's but it, but uh, but I want to just um, I, I don't disagree with anything you've just said, yeah. um, and I want to say that it's not 
people don't generally find it easy to separate from those um, because for most people we're taught implicitly and explicitly sometimes that that's that's our mind that's my mind those or those little me. voices that's coming from me yeah and that's really not right yeah. right or or that I don't have to make draw the conclusion that that's my mind myself etc so one of you know one of the main reasons that people do meditation is precisely Stuart was putting uh, characterizing it as creating separation between those phenomena and that which witnesses those phenomena and um, and that's one of the key parts of, of spiritual practice one of the key things you know I, I'm I'm taking a uh, a class uh, with my friend uh, Mary here from someone who's a very gifted intuitive uh, teacher and one of the th one of the things about intuition is we can fool ourselves that our thoughts are actually expressions of our intuition but according to another book I'm reading for another show we're going to be doing on, our, on this podcast series um, the uh, intuition is, is the expression of the subconscious and Gurdjieff said as well as this author I'm reading um, that our conscious mind is not who we really are that's the conscious mind that listens to those thoughts and thinks it's that's who I am but it's the subconscious that is actually running the show so if we w if we keep banging our head against the wall it's because our subconscious has impression food that supports that continuing um, activity and so if we're going to shift that activity we have to adopt practices that allow us to go to our inner life and our inner life is where the action is in terms of being able to exercise choice in the way that you're discussing that's that's my you know uh, yeah. formulation of yeah and then and you know again what you described with the desert fathers is you know to attain to the relationship or your, your relationship to the thoughts or things that are just passing through is no small feat particularly when you're starting from the place of uh, being completely identified with the thoughts that are passing through or the feelings that are passing through some, some people because they accept everything that goes through their mind even if it's a negative thing I mean I have a friend I'm not going to say who it is but he went to Sebastopol he just accepts everything that passes through his mind and he wants to experience it fully even if it's negative terrible stuff that most of us would want to get he just wants to Accept it all in and go with it. I mean, do well. There's a there's a there's a there there's a subtle distinction here. It is possible to not reject anything, any of that, any of those thoughts in our minds, without identifying with them. And in that sense, yeah, we can be present to negative manifestations, but not identify those as me and then the tr the reactive triggers in the body and emotions don't um, take over and then generate a new story of I'm a piece of crap 
or my life is terrible, or whatever whatever the thoughts are are insisting on. So um, so that's you know that's that's um, a very subtle thing that, in my experience, from what I, both personal and, and observation of others, is very hard to achieve. So I don't know who this person is. Um, that you're referring to in particular, but I do know that there are relatively few people who can accept super negative impression food uh, like that and identify with it and come out um, squeaky clean at the end. <laughs> well, but I, I, I think in his, I, I don't know what your friend is. You know whether they're I, identified. I don't know if they're being identified and uh, just you know being thrown hither and yon by the winds that come in, yeah. or whether uh, they're doing something more like just, a, just an acceptance of anything. Right. So 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 there's a difference between being able to accept like a thought and being willing to look at any thought because because. As one gets some space and uh, and and sees thoughts going through, uh, you know there there still there can be a tendency to judge the thought and to push thoughts away or to uh, say this is a good thought that's a bad thought. And someone uh, could reasonably look at any thought that comes in, or or be willing to be present to any feeling that arises, such that it arises and passes. The problem that happens for, you know, when we get stuck is when, you know, we get a cramp of some sort where a feeling arises and we just kind of nurse it with, uh, you know, uh, frantic thinking and we're sort of stuck with that energy. It's possible to, you know, have sadness arise and be sad for a moment and then the sadness will pass because emotions and feelings are, are, are more like fluid. They'll flow. They arise, they pass. And as long as we allow them to arise and pass, then we can fully experience what's coming through, uh, but not be bound by it or stuck by it. And we're just we're just aware of it. We see it. We don't try to hold it. We don't try to push it away, and it arises and passes. And that and that's to me a that's good. That's a way of uh, uh, cultivating a kind of sensitivity that allows us to cultivate that intuition that we're talking about where there's a just a more subtle responsiveness to life and things that are arising but that's a different process than getting stuck in something that's coming through or uh, you know having um, <laughs> going into a hotel room where you know someone had a bad day the night before and you know picking up the negative uh, uh, ideations and treating it as your own and being in a bad mood and kicking a dog or something like that as you uh, walk down the street I mean that's that's very we're talking about very different manifestations there you know uh, whereas someone who has that kind of fluidity I'm describing in the same hotel room would sort of would probably have the sensitivity of saying wow there's this interesting feeling here you know I wonder what happened in this room that's what you Act how you act on it's, it's whether you take it as you, yeah. and whether it becomes you and you become it, and there's no yeah. separation. Yeah. That that and that's what we're that's really the, the what we're talking about in terms of how do you diffuse the uh, comfort-seeking missile is, is that subtle separation between the arising of the phenomenology of our conscious experience and our identification with that phenomenology. Yeah, I mean, it's and the other thing is, it's um, it's usually not very productive to judge how other people are doing. Much much better to go, 
uh, into one's own, you know, um, bailiwick, and um, and cultivate these uh, the inner resources that that help um, facilitate the kind of witnessing capacity that is at the heart of um, spiritual practice. So, yeah, and. We were having a conversation uh, in our study group th- uh, this week, and it was kind of triggered for me from uh, the presentation we had last Saturday from uh, a group of uh, students of the Fourth Way teacher, Willem Nyland, who, who, who come out with a book. And the question was around, you know, spiritual practices like like working with a teacher, for instance, and what what happens. Uh, in this process, or how does that relate to this process? And I was recalling in my own work with my teacher that um, there would be often times where one of the ways in which he functioned was to be annoying to my comfort-seeking self. And by that, I, I would be doing something, and then he would, you know, call me to ask me to do something else. It could be something in the kitchen. It could be I was working something, in, you know. Uh, uh, and and then he wanted me to go outside and do something, but because I had that relationship of working with this person and the capacity of a teacher, part of that relationship was this uh, ongoing uh, annoyance of being pulled out of the comfort zone of doing what I'm doing, where I have all this momentum about I'm going in this direction, suddenly I have to move in this direction. And as I was reflecting on that, as it pertains to the process that we're describing here, it's What's interesting about this is that I sort of am reminded at you know how much inertia my habits and tendencies of mind will produce for me, uh, and the the good test of that is to see how quickly you can shift, how quickly you can shift context, and um, and I, I I experience this and, and get tested by this all the time in my workplace because I work as a manager so I'm constantly being you know, getting these asynchronous interruptions, and it's hard. It's hard, you know, I'm, I'm trying to work on something, someone comes into my office, you know, can I f- turn and be fully present, or is my attention divided in that moment? And to the degree that I can be fully present and, and make that transition is the degree to which there's a level of freedom that means that I'm not bound by the momentum of my uh, psychic operation, that that there's a flexibility there or a, uh, uh, a fluidity that gives the rise to the possibility of being more sensitive to uh, subtle things in our world that may not be uh, uh, so easily apparent to the... Um, uh <coughs> ordinary mind. And so, for instance, when we speak in the fourth way of being impulses that arise from the divine, one of the being, <coughs> being info, uh, impulses that is very central in the fourth way tradition is conscience, <coughs> in that it's actually learning to be in touch with our conscience that offers us the possibility of waking up on a, a more continuous basis. And so, conscience functions as, as a, you know, there's the term, the, the still small voice. And that still small voice can't be heard if there is this sort of uh, 
hurricane of, uh, of mechanical behavior that's just overwhelming that, that, that small voice. But when you develop the capacity to turn on a dime, you have the capacity equally to hear or be sensitive to that still voice. And from that, one can begin to orient one's uh, activities and manifestation in life from a different place than the mechanical habits that are the accidents of our upbringing. And so it's an interesting, you know, this, you know, the ultimate conclusion of this kind of work, it's not just about uh, creating that space between ourselves, our, our being, and the thoughts, feelings, and sensations we have. There's another invitation, which is that there's a genuine being impulse present in us in the form of our conscience, which is a connection to the divine. It's the divine's voice manifesting through us, but in order to truly be in touch with that, we have to have the space and the facility to actually uh, hear it. And it may ask us to do something that's not comfortable in, in a given moment. But we ha And then, if we have the training to move against comfort as opposed to always sort of following the gradient of comfort, then we have the possibility of uh, expressing from our conscience as opposed to expressing from our mechanical feelings and thoughts. When you mentioned mechanical feelings and thoughts, it just made me think of like uh, disorders, like obsessive-compulsive disorder, somebody who's extremely rigid or they get stuck in these modes and they can't stop fulfilling action. Yeah, and, and well, that's an extreme yeah. example, but, it, but, but even... But even just the ordinary things that we do in our lives uh, uh, often have a flavor of that compulsiveness in them. So, and but because we are swimming in them, we are inured to seeing <coughs> that compulsive quality. And so that's why um, exploring the inner life, provi in the way that Stuart was just describing, provides a methodology to to actually effectively look at that, interrogate it, um, and and um, and make that make that connection connective. You know, we start off by talking about comfort is is uh, about relief of affliction or anxiety or dis distress uh, through human contact. And you brought up you were the one, Will, who brought up. Um, God, and um, and the connection to something bigger than ourselves, however we describe it to ourselves, um, is the the source of another form of connection, um, the uh, object of another form of connection that also nourishes and sustains this um, inner exploration. And it deepens, you know. It's a, uh, it at least there's the potential that it will continue to deepen and expand. So, um, unless there's another question, I think that's a good place to uh, conclude. Voila, there it is. Thank you. All right, thank you. <laughs>
All right. Well, here we are in the post-talk debrief. So, uh, the, uh, does anything uh, uh, come up for you, having reflected now on the talk we gave on diffusing the comfort-seeking missile? Well, one of the things that uh, one of the topics that was raised in a question uh, by one of the uh, uh, folks in the audience is the subject of purification. And I certainly responded to that in the talk itself, but I wanted to make perhaps my position on this clear. First, it seems to me that it's natural that the question would come up. So I don't, I don't have a problem with the question of purification coming up um, when the issue of comfort in spiritual practice arises. Many traditions have used the purification model to frame how people can live their lives and get closer to God or closer to um, whatever higher um, energy you want to des describe. And, and so um, no problem in, in responding to it. What I tried to say in, in the talk, and I want to make sure it was clear, to listeners now, is that is that the purification model is something that I think applies to as a practical and workable approach, technique, and path. It applies really to very few people that I've ever met. Hmm. That is to say, when when people adopt the idea of purification, I'm, you know, I have these. Uh, obstacles in me that are that need to be purified um, it fits into a self-critical narrative that in our culture in our time is actually has has a lot of pathological elements now I will say that I was thinking about this before we sat down again here and I can think of exactly one person that I know a longtime spiritual devotee who who I think has genuinely profited over the long term from a an approach that adopts um, this attitude. But he's a really unusual person. I'm not going to name names here. Um, and and a very has a very remarkable makeup. When we did our show with him um, years ago, I was kind of flabbergasted because I'd never met anyone quite like. Um, this person in terms of his internal makeup and and it was a, a demonstration and lesson to me that uh, no matter how much I think I have it figured out the universe is extraordinarily creative in not ruling out anything that will be useful and helpful to people in in their spiritual practices so um so I first need to stress that point is that is that um I'm not saying don't try purification but examine the reasons why you think it's going to be effective for you. Yeah, I I think I mentioned this for myself in the talk that when I experiment with elements of purification 
what comes most naturally or easy for me is uh, all or nothing. Mm-hmm. And what I find most challenging is to be present in the sensory realm or the you know the realm the 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 realm of ordinary life to bring a dimension of presence to that and partake of the fruits of ordinary life without being carried away so in other words um you know in the example of either not having caffeine or drinking caffeine like a fiend or uh, uh, not drinking wine or drinking, you know, wine sort of or compulsively. Being, or being celibate or not celibate. Right. Is it possible to uh, stake out the middle way with full attention such that one doesn't get carried away and that the invitations to get carried away are things that one can reasonably be present to and not give in to? Well, you just used... used um the definite article, the middle way. I don't, uh, and I want, and I want to stress here that I don't think there is a the middle way. No, I agree. I there, mean, you know, that we we have to allow for space to for people to find find their own path, and that may include periods of greater or lesser purification, renunciation, and um, and that's fine. Right, right. Well, that, it's, it's, that, a, it's a way to it's it's a way to test something. Yeah, and just to, and just to explore different states of experience or different flows of experience. Like as I described in the talk, I went through a period of a month of um, uh, shifting habits, and that effect on me was uh, useful. Uh, besides just the purpose of doing that, which was. Uh, uh, to conduct a series of meditative practices, the over, the other effect was that it helped uh, shift my relationship to uh, habit patterns that I had that, um, you know, change, change the balance or change, change the uh, chemistry. And yet, in all of that, I don't think it, those things change the fundamental truth or the fundamental aim and, of being present to my life because that presence is something that is senior to the details or the contents of my experience. Well, you're talking about a how, and the purification model tends to focus on on the what, and and therefore it's attractive to the mind because with a what uh, delineated, we can then try to change the external circumstances of our lives, or even, to some extent, the internal circumstances of our lives. But I think that project is a lot tougher to do. You know, one of the the questioner who brought up the renunciation or or purification model um, mentioned someone who, and and he himself asserted that, that he has played around with changing his emotional state, as I understood him to say, uh, by changing the thoughts in his head. And I'm not saying that that's not possible, but the um, the thing we're looking for here, or the thing that I'm looking for here, is a long-term shift, such that um, the what doesn't matter so much. It's not that the what is irrelevant, 
but um, but what we're doing is not the key thing. How we're doing things is the is the important right. criterion. Right. In that in that sense, then the how, which is can also be stated as from where are we doing things, is can can percolate through any number of different lifestyles and it's possible to uh, awaken or enlighten or lighten uh, any number of manifestations in the, the phenomenal world and so at, from that perspective whether you're a desert father or you're living in uh, you know 21st century uh, America it doesn't it doesn't particularly matter in terms of the details what can come through is a truer expression of our real nature. I'm going to clarify that last that last phrase uh, because I'm not quite sure what can come through. What is that? What does that mean? Well, I, I think that if if one is has an intuition about uh, the nature of their self and they have an uh, intuition about the nature of being, they are in connection with an authentic aspect of themselves or or their authentic self that can come through and uh, affect and transform the any details of life whether one's in a uh, renunciate uh, monastery in a desert or if one's in the middle of uh, a you know active 21st century life filled with careers and family and children and things like that. Um, um, I, I just um, consideration we're going to change something fundamental to ourselves. We don't have any direct purchase on it, as far as I can see. We have indirect means that are that can be effective over the applied over the long term, but just sitting down and thinking particular thing or not thinking a particular thing um, it's it's to me superficial yeah but that's not what I was saying uh-huh. uh, so I, I'm not sure but but I'm I think, but sure I think what, what you were I think what you were saying could be interpreted uh, by by some of our interlocutors in this in the talk that way perhaps I, I I'm thinking of something because um, I because I, 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 let me let me pinpoint it is when you talked about intuition you that's a that's a a very interesting subject we're actually going to get into that subject when we speak to a, another guest in a few weeks because i've been reading his book and i'm really impressed with the clarity he has about uh, intuition i don't think he has the whole picture but he has a, he has an important set of elements to it but but the reason i was di- uh, disagreeing with you to uh, to some extent is that i don't think intuition without interrogation is a reliable anything i think we have to, we have to maintain a um a separation even from um what the what we think the intuition is telling us intuition when it informs action directly is one thing okay so so let me let me try to be clearer because in the talk we were speaking about a perspective in which one has the space to observe and to be present to the arising of thoughts, the arising of feelings, the arising of sensations, and 
one is present to the um, mechanisms and uh, automata that constitute the you know flow of uh, the personality and and, and uh, what we might term normal consciousness. And from that place, I'm not suggesting that uh, the the program is necessarily to take actions and to edit behaviors, which to some extent was what one of our uh, uh, to a considerable extent. Yeah, one of our. Uh, I mean, in two, it, in two it, cases. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's possible to do that sort of thing, but uh, I w I'm, what I was speaking to just a moment ago is something more fundamental, which is the abiding in that kind of perspective over time and the the uh interrogation of the arising of of uh thoughts and feelings and sensations in oneself through the course of one's life um affects a kind of uh meta metabolism of those factors such that one over time begins to shift and the and the, the nature of one's expression in life will necessarily change in the face of holding that that uh, observer presence more consistently in I, one's life. I'm not agree I'm not just agreeing with you in individual cases, but what I what I think is just so important to stress is precisely how people are going to hear what you're saying and how they're going to misinterpret it um, or how they're likely to misinterpret it. And that's why I'm that's why I'm I'm stressing how important it is to um, to not be won over by an interpretation that says this is in, this is me acting intuitively, or this is me thinking intuitively, or this is me feeling intuitively. Yeah, that's, well, that's that's a that's a a really crucial. Yeah, but I, and so again, I'm not that I'm not in any way saying that, and I'm not sure that that it follows from the words I was using because I'm not suggesting that one uh, suddenly align oneself with uh, motive factors in oneself that one doesn't have any idea where they're coming from because uh, I think to your point. Anything, any any cause for action in our lives uh, is subject to a level of scrutiny and a level of presence in order to understand and to deepen into what what is giving rise to that motive force. Well, that's where we're in agreement. But but I'm so leery of these broad brush strokes, which I think were used by the the interlocutor that we're whose yeah, whose yeah, input yeah. we were we've been discussing precisely to misunderstand what. You, what you were just saying. Yeah, I I, I, I agree. I mean, it, it, it's it's, uh, and in some respects, I, I look at that as a, um, uh, how would I call it? Uh, you know, as the Buddhists would say, a provisional teaching. Where yes, it's possible to uh, assert, as it were, right thinking, right action, as the Buddhists would say. You know, um, uh, to shift the flow of one's experience that if, if one intentionally and consciously uh, changes how one is thinking to break a cycle of mechanical or compulsive negative thinking there will be a uh, a consequence in the subsequent uh, flow of experience and it, 
from a provisional point of view, there's nothing wrong with that. It's it kind of exists at a quasi psychological level, but it's not the ultimate possibility that I think we're pointing to. Well, once again, I, I just have a problem with your language because it is so. It doesn't talk about any any of the nitty gritty. It it um, points toward something that we have this history, uh, both in the talk and in my life, and observing at the at our uh, spiritual bookstore of people um, picking up a ball that's supposed to go, that was thrown to them in one direction and running off to another whole baseball uh, diamond and proclaiming that, that they know what the heck that ball is for and how it's supposed to be used. So, so um, and maybe this is a reproduction of our ontology epistemology uh, uh, no, I, I, I don't agree. I, I actually, I don't think that's the case because I think we're we're actually, I think, more dealing in this question with the epistemological, you know, what is an effective means? Mm-hmm. And you're right. Uh, the someone who is uh, focused on thinking good thoughts can be something of a Pollyanna and uh, become a mechanical. Uh, 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 positive thinker and not really come to terms with or interrogate deeper factors in themselves that they're asking over. I got got it. And I want to just add, that doesn't preclude people from drawing themselves to energy, energies that are creative and positive, um, because I don't want want to leave the final impression as... um, uh, as some kind of crit- criticism of of positive, it's just a tool. Right. So I I agree, and and maybe we can leave it at that point for now. And uh, this will clearly come up in uh, some of our subsequent conversations with some of the guests we have coming up on our show. I don't doubt it. Good. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you. Good night. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a recording of a talk that Rob Schmidt and I gave at Mini Rivers Books and Tea on Thursday, February 20th, entitled, Diffusing the Human Comfort-Seeking Missile. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we feature an in-studio conversation with Christine Scarda. Born in Appleton, Wisconsin in 1952, Christine Scarda was educated in the United States and Europe. She received her Ph.D. in philosophy in 1982 and subsequently taught internationally. In 1982, Scarda was invited to join the innovative Sloan program at UC Berkeley and MIT that brought together experts from diverse fields to study intelligence. She thus became a pioneer in the movement later known as cognitive science. Scarda's interest in perception led her to investigate its physiological basis. She held postdoctoral positions in a neuroscience lab at UC Berkeley from 1984 to 1992 and a fellowship in cognitive science at the École Polytechnique in Paris between 1986 and 1988. In the early 1990s, Scarda's own neuroscience research and her analysis of decades of data from the research of others convinced her that the theoretical model of perception prevalent in neuroscience was flawed. Instead of the perceptual system constructing internal representations of a fundamentally separate external world, Scarda presented an alternative model. Reality starts out as an unbroken web, which a perceptual system breaks up. All the data she had analyzed convinced her that our sense of ourselves as subjects completely independent from objects is created by perceptual activity. It is not an actual state of affairs. 
In fact, there are no gaps between the perceiver and the world. To gain access to this undifferentiated level and to understand how the perceptual process breaks it up into the world that we experience, Skarda then turned to Tibetan Buddhism. This tradition offers systematic methods to explore this foundational state. Since 1992, she has been using these methods to investigate where the model prevalent neuroscience has gone wrong. To this end, Skarda has spent the last 16 years in meditation retreat in India and the United States. Under the guidance of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, His Holiness Chetsong Rinpoche, and Ken Nyawang Jimpa Rinpoche. She now also teaches Buddhism, drawing from her background in Western thought and science to explain even the most subtle and difficult points of Buddhist philosophy by using the language of the modern world. Tune in for that show on Saturday, February 29th from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, an evening meeting in Sebastopol with Rupert Spira. That's Tuesday, February 25th from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Sebastopol Center for the Arts, 382 South High Street in Sebastopol. Tickets are $20, available in advance online and at the door, though seating is limited. The meeting will start with a contemplation followed by a question and answer session. Rupert Spira is an international teacher of the Advaita Vedanta direct path method of spiritual self-inquiry through talks and writings and a notable English potter and studio potter with work in public and private collections. And then, on Thursday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m., Looking for Revolution, Finding Murder, The Crimes and Transformation of Catherine Ann Power. That's with Jane Landman, author of Looking for Revolution, Finding Murder. That's uh, at Many Rivers Books and Tea, February 27th, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. Catherine Ann Power radicalized herself into a violent revolutionary in college. Following her participation in 1970 in a bank robbery in which a Boston police officer was murdered, she went underground. Twenty-three years later, she turned herself in. Looking for Revolution, Finding Murder chronicles Power's stumbling zigzag pilgrimage from good Catholic girl to idealistic anti-war activist to gun-toting domestic terrorist to accomplice to murder to longtime fugitive to voluntary but defiant convict and finally to something like redeemed. Janet Landman, Ph.D., is a research psychologist, writer, and award-winning poet. She has taught psychology at Boston University, the University of Michigan, and Babson College. The recipient of a National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship, she has authored numerous research articles and two nonfiction books. Her new book, Looking for Revolution, Finding Murder, The Crimes and Transformation of Catherine N. Power, was released by Paragon House in September 2019. Her first book, Regret, The Persistence of the Possible, 1993 from Oxford University Press, was named a Book of the Year by The Independent and by the Princeton Theological Seminary and the Association of Theological Booksellers. She now makes her home in Santa Rosa. And then on Friday, uh, February 28th, Angels the Native Way with Native Californian healer Trina Vega. That's with facilitator uh, Trina Vega, and this is a uh, weekly course happening on Fridays. This is the last session for the month of February. Trina writes, I have experienced angels my entire life of a short journey on earth of 62 years. I will assist you in linking with and hearing your own angels. Come join us in really getting to know your angels, spirit guides, and guardian angels. I will also include hearings from past loved ones, so let's start off the new year with opening to the spiritual native realm of angels. 
You can contact her at 707-391-7373, and she'll be more than happy to answer any questions. So many blessings from uh, Trina Vega. Trina Vega is a Native American healer who practices a diverse menu of healings from Grandmother Ocean to healing with the angels. She is an intuitive reader and has practiced and offered readings for 30 plus years. She is the youthful and energetic grandmother to 18 grandchildren. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.